0: Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit charted by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In November, we hosted a great conversation about Cicero, a Roman statesman and philosopher, and his central influence on the American founding. We were joined by Scott Nelson, author of Cicero, Politics and the 21st Century, Benjamin Strauman, author of Crisis and Constitutionalism, Roman Political Thought from the Fall of the Republic to the Age of Revolution, and Caroline Winterer, author of The Culture of Classicism, Ancient Greece and Rome in American Intellectual Life. We're sharing the episode as part of our Best of 2022 Town Hall series. Enjoy the show and happy holidays. Have a wonderful new year, dear We the People friends, And look forward to reconvening in 2023. Uh, Welcome, Scott Nelson, Benjamin Strauman, and Carolyn Winter. Carolyn, we were honored to have you join last year for a great program on the classics and the founders. uh, Today, you're teaching uh, a class at Stanford now on the influence of the classics on the founders. And um, Cicero's On Duties was, uh, by some measures, the most frequently cited text in the founding era introduce our audience to this wonderful topic of what Cicero's influence was on the founding generation.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having all of us here today. It's a pleasure to be back. The founding era loved Cicero and the other Romans of the late Republican period because they saw themselves reliving that moment where they felt that they were on a precipice between political liberty and political despotism, with despotism symbolized by King George III of England and his minions in Parliament. And so they looked to people like Cicero, who they saw as the last embattled defenders of Roman liberties against the overweening tyrannical forces that were gathering on the horizon. And so that is why Cicero not only started as a major component of the cultural infatuation with antiquity in the 18th century, but that he in fact continued in American education and political life all the way up until the Civil War era, because one lesson that Americans took away from building a republic was that republics are fragile political entities and that you must always be on guard. You can never relax your guard and that you need to constantly read Cicero. I'll read you a, just a quick quotation uh, that John Adams wrote to his son, John Quincy, who was all of 14 years old. So, you know, you can imagine the original helicopter parent uh, of John Adams Adams Adams, but he's in the middle of a long letter where he's telling him what to read. He says, in company with Sallust, Cicero, Tacitus, and Livy, you will learn wisdom and virtue. You will ever remember that the end of study is to make you a good man and a useful citizen. So this is not education for creativity. This is education to uphold that most fragile and wonderful of political entities, which is a republic in the style of Rome. Oh, so inspiring. What a great introduction. And thank you so much for
0: signaling and highlighting John Adams in his letters. And it's so striking, as you say, to see John Adams exhorting John Quincy Adams to read Cicero, who they read together, and John Quincy Adams to exhorting his own Sons to read Cicero and, and Quincy eventually taking a a, a motto from the Tusculan Disputations as his own motto. Um, my f- seeds will bear fruit in future generation. Alteri seculo. Uh, so committed was he to Cicero's influence. Just marvelous, Benjamin Strauman, In your uh, really powerful new book, Crisis and Constitutionalism: Roman Political Thought from the Fall of the Republic to the Age of the Revolution, you have a very powerful. Uh, chapter on Cicero's influence on constitution making in particular. And you argue that far from embracing the uh, traditional classic Republican emphasis on virtue above all, Cicero anticipated Enlightenment thinkers, who cited him directly, by insisting on the need for separation of powers uh, for the protection of private property. Tell us about Cicero's unique blending of the classic and liberal influences and and how central they were at the founding? Yeah, thank you very much for
2: having me. And thanks a lot for this great question. Um, Yeah, so I think one of the key reasons why Cicero was so singularly influential, and this really um, merits emphasis because there has been this long... um, debate in historiography about you know relative influence on the American founding and framing of the Constitution, and there has been this long debate. Is Locke really the person, or is it is it really the men of the 17th century as English Republicans, or is it really Montesquieu, after all, or is it Blackstone? Um, in this whole debate, what's maybe a little bit forgotten is that uh, someone like Cicero, who's usually perceived as a mere ornament, has really Exercised huge influence, not least actually via all those figures such as Locke or Montesquieu or Laxton, um, but also in his own right. And the re- the reason I think yeah why he's become then such an extremely popular thinker and writer in the revolutionary era is that he promised not only a diagnosis of the collapse of a large uh, you know large scale extensive republic, uh, the Roman Republic. But he also promised, to a certain extent, um, the remedy against this kind of collapse. And the remedy that he put forward was, at least um, to to a large extent, it was a a legal remedy, or it was uh, it had to do with institutions and with law more than with virtue. And so that's another reason why I think that's maybe a bit receded from the scholarly focus because usually classical influences, everyone thinks it's about virtue. But uh, Cicero was actually, when you read him, rather skeptical about the reach of virtue and what it can do for a political order. And that skepticism, I think founders such as Adams and Wilson um, and Hamilton Madison anyways shared.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much for that. And, And it really is fascinating, as you say, to see Cicero emphasizing the goal of government to be to protect private property, uh, not to cultivate uh, virtue, to see Locke directly citing Cicero for that conclusion. And then as you say, uh, Madison getting his Lockean conclusion from Cicero as well. Scott Nelson, in your uh, forthcoming book, Cicero Politics in the 21st Century, you distill lessons for today from uh, Cicero and the Western world. And you talk about, uh, in particular, his book On on the Republic, On the Commonwealth, which gives us the constitutional thought of Cicero and its emphasis on uh, separation of powers. Tell us about those constitutional principles that are found in On the Republic and, and what lessons they can give us today.
3: Sure. Uh, and thank you very much for having me here. Um, I mean, I, I think that, that Cicero's political thought has, has a few different pillars, certainly the constitutional one. Um, but also, uh, I do think that, that Deo Ficis on duties is important as well, as well as his de Oratore, the role played by uh, reason and speech in, in the public sphere. I mean, we, after all, we pride ourselves in our republics today um, on, on the power of persuasion, you know, not forcing. Uh, conclusions or outcomes, but rather in persuading other people because we believe that we all share in in reason, and that's actually part of um, Cicero's uh, notion of the the natural law that that all human beings share in reason, and that actually there is a a law that precedes even political community. Um, so I think that this is this this is an important point for for Cicero because it means that. Let's say majority opinion is not necessarily what makes law. Uh, it's not just what, what what the masses say. There is actually a a, a universal an objective law out there, and a just political community is just only insofar as as it respects that kind of law. And I think that that once you've established that point, it elides rather easily into the natural rights doctrine of, of the founding fathers. Because so I don't think you have to make a very great leap from that notion to the notion that there are certain natural rights that are self-evident, um, uh, that, that belong to us all, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or life, life, liberty, and, and, and property. I think that another major issue of importance for, for Cicero in his De Republica, for example, um, is the, the notion of balance, um, so the, where we, the, the mixed regime idea. I mean, one of the, the great issues for the ancient philosophers is, well, what exactly is the best regime? Is it a monarchy, an aristocracy, or a democracy? And Cicero says, well, actually, we, we want to have a blend of all these things, a blend not just because they can all check each other and balance each other out, but also because every single one of these regimes has certain virtues And we want to try to harness the virtues of each of them and and, and combine them together. So a democracy's virtue is that it preserves the liberty of the people and we want to create a free state. The virtue of a monarchy is that in times of crisis, well, when you need uh, decisions to be made and action to be taken, then it's much easier for a single individual to take that responsibility and do it than uh, than to have everybody talking with, with different ideas. And then finally, uh, the aristocracy is supposed to provide a moderating kind of uh, influence between the two. And, and um, in order for it to to do that, I mean, to moderate against uh, the tyranny of one on the one hand, but also the tyranny of the the majority uh, on the other hand. And I think for Cicero, it's important that those people uh, be the best citizens, that they be that they be good citizens, virtuous citizens, because if they're not then the regime will become corrupt, and then they'll set a bad example for for everyone else. I think that those are, in a nutshell, some of Cicero's ideas.
0: That was just a wonderful summary of uh, Cicero's ideas, and you so helpfully help us understand the connection between his ideas of natural law derived from divine reason or nature, and the need for balance among the various orders of government and also within the soul itself, that kind of harmony and balance that we find that leads to private and public happiness, and the, the duties that that creates for citizens to perfect themselves so they can achieve that balance in themselves and in the polity. Carolyn, it's so helpful to think about Cicero's thought as an integrated whole, both his moral and his political thought. Why don't you introduce us to some of the major elements of it, the connections between them, And I'll just introduce this central distinction that comes up again and again in Cicero between reason and passion. And in On Duties, he says, we must keep ourselves free from every disturbing emotion or passion, not only from desire and fear, but also from excessive pain and pleasure. To to what degree does that duty to moderate our passions in light of reason suffuse his moral and political thought?
1: Well, I can only uh, pretend to represent the founder's uh, view of Cicero rather than what Cicero really was, because, you know, they had a very... not a narrow way of viewing the the Romans and the Greeks but a very uh kind of task oriented view of the ancient Greeks and Romans they took what they needed to build their republic and you're absolutely right that one of the things that they really focused on in Cicero and others in the ancient world is the necessity of reason to guide us and of course the enlightenment of the late 18th century is the moment when Many philosophers, political philosophers, moral philosophers, are beginning to think about what it means to have reason and how we need to harness reason in order to form republics. And in order to have reason, you have to imagine what its opposites are in order to frame who the enemies of the republic might be. So passion becomes the great bugbear of 18th century Political thought, and they begin to fear all of those uh, people in society or institutions in society that strike them as the opposite of reason and of of the kind of balanced order that um, the Epicureans and the Stoics were in favor of. So that might be, for example, women who were known to be nothing but you'd be entirely constituted of the passions and were therefore in Republican political thought, agents of chaos and agents that would very likely bring about uh, the downfall of the Republic. Because the opposite of manly civic virtue, which of course has the the Latin word for man within it was uh, feminine frivolity uh, or or luxury. And so they were on the lookout against uh, these sorts of things. Uh, Slaves could also be sources of the passions and debauchery, all kinds of uh, music that made you lose your mind in, in a kind of sensual pleasure rather than thinking of the Republic. These things became problematic in the 18th century in part because the founders were reading people like Cicero who were um, emboldening them to think only of the sort of stern manly virtues, uh, along, you know, along with people like uh, Tacitus and, and Sallust, you know, a little later who would tell them about uh, how to bring about the bedrock of the Republic through a control of reason rather than the passions. The probably one of the greatest exponents of this that your listeners will have heard of is Thomas Paine in common sense and in the title of common sense doesn't mean common sense in the way that we think about it today as you know look both ways before you cross the street right that's how we think of common (laughs) sense but what he meant was that you are using your five senses and we have those senses in common and if we listen only to those five senses then we will build reasonable republics if we start being influenced by other things than our senses like the passions then you might as well forget about it. It'll be a despotism before you know it. So that is, that is the, the, the sort of passion, reason, duty influence that they're looking for in Cicero.
0: So interesting. Uh, reminding us of the fact that that word virtue, as you say, is the word for male. Um, talking about this place of women and enslaved people, and, and when we met last, you, you called our attention to how classically educated women like like Abigail Adams, who signed herself Portia, would embrace that uh, idea of restraining your passion so that you could achieve this kind of virtue. And the music point is so great as well. And um, several of you quote John Adams invoking Handel's music as the model of balance and harmony. And you remind us, Carolyn Winterer, that there were other kinds of music that excited the passions in ways that were considered bad for the soul. Uh, Benjamin Strauman, help us understand that reason, passion, distinction. And your book does such an important job showing us that the roots of natural law philosophy were really in Cicero and all of those 18th century contractarian theorists, including Montesquieu and Locke. We're relying on Cicero for the idea that we're born in a state of nature with with certain uh, rights and duties, and that uh, government action that violates those common constitutional norms, use, as you put it, are beyond the law. And we have a duty to align ourselves with nature and live our lives according to divine nature. Uh, Help us uh, understand that in Cicero's thought.
2: This uh, distinction between uh, reason on the one hand and the passions on the other hand is of course, um, absolutely key to Cicero's thought, um, and he has inherited it from the Greek uh, moral philosophers. But the way he handles it is interestingly different and I think quite original. Um, It's not quite as the Greek uh, moral philosophers handled it in many ways. So one key uh, ingredient in Cicero's thought is, and this is to do with something Scott mentioned earlier, It's the fact that reason is uh, seen as a capacity to gain insight into what the natural law uh, demands of us, what the natural law consists in. Um, But now for Cicero, this is no longer, say, the Stoics also have a similar idea, but they think it's really just very few, very rare individuals, the Stoics, sages, those who are really wise, who actually can gain access to this natural law. Uh, Cicero, however, um, interestingly expands um, the scope of those who can gain insight. And he thinks, in principle, we can all just, you know, as a matter of being human beings, actually, um, as a matter of being part of the human species uh, of the societas, humani generis, as he puts it, that in and of itself is enough to gain insight into the rules of uh, natural law and into the rights and obligations that this natural law generates. And so that is, of course, um, this universalizing tendency is quite is quite interesting. But it goes also hand in hand with a kind of downgrading of the ambitions of the natural law in a way. Because you know, in in Greek philosophy, usually what this all does is that if you're really rational, then what beckons is happiness. You 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 get the good life. That's uh, this, it's a pretty neat prize, right? It's kind of nice, uh, hard to get. But if you are really supremely rational, then you will get the the good life. In Cicero, there's a lot of indications that he's that he's a skeptic. So he's not a Stoic. He's a he's a skeptic. He's worried about us not having really a, a solid conception of the good life and of what, what we need to get there. And so he writes another work, De Finibus, uh, you know, on on ends and what, what, what what's the what's the goal of human life. And there he discusses all the Greek prop- proposals for that. But the dialogue ends in a somewhat aporetic, on an aporetic note. It's we can't really figure this out. So what he comes up with in other works, such as in you know in his political theories, the Republic, the Laws, and in this strange mix of political theory and moral philosophy, that is the On Duties, the De what he comes up with there is a kind of natural law for skeptics. It's you know we may not know the highest good. We do not have access to the, to a solid conception of the highest good. But what we do know is this natural law that generates rights and obligations for all of us, That for us who are not sages. And it, in Deo it even generates some obligations vis-a-vis slaves, which is quite unheard of uh, in a Roman context, of course. And so there's, there's really this push um, of uh, the, the idea that we all have access to reason you know, via reason to do what the natural law demands. So that's the, I think, in a way, the most important part. And what this entails is, of course, that he, you know, um, if virtue is great if we can get it, but um, he wants in his political theory, he always, what Scott mentions, his his qualms about the, the good constitutions, the simple good constitutions, is usually that, you know, you have a really just king that's neat, but even the justest king, such as Justissimus King Cyrus, the Persian king, who had a good reputation, he will invariably tilt into the worst tyrant of all, into a kind of fallaries, he says. Because virtue is, you, it's, it's, it's not to be always trusted. You can't really be sure that it always works. The same with the, a good government of the few, some aristocrats, same danger lurks there. And of course, the same with the, the government of the many, a kind of democracy. If they're all virtuous, that's all for the better. But it's not very stable, Cicero thinks. Virtue isn't stable enough. So when it comes to political order to all of us in the aggregate, then he, in a way, he moves reason onto the constitutional domain, you might say. It's, it, reason sits in the rules that govern all of us. So that, that is the, the broad tendency that uh, I think um, is attractive to some of the founders. And, you know, um, also to, to just one quote, if, because John Adams is usually seen as this kind of the last classical Republican who, who banks on virtue. But of course, uh, you can read in, in Adams' defense um, of the uh, constitutions of government of the United States, um, in the first volume, you can read sentences such as this one. It's not true, I'm quoting Adams, it's not true, in fact, that any people ever existed who loved the public better than themselves, their private friends, neighbors, etc. And therefore, this kind of virtue is as precarious a foundation for liberty as honor or fear. It's the laws alone. That loved that really loved the country. End of quote. So there, there you can see this Ciceronian skepticism vis-a-vis. It, it's a nice thing. Individually, we try to to get to it, but in the aggregate, let's not rely just on that.
0: Mm, such a such a great and clear melding of uh, Cicero's ideas of natural law, uh, which were the foundation for the Enlightenment, as you say, with his. Feeling that virtue was not a stable foundation uh, for governments, and that the one, the few, and the many—and and as you note, that that comes from Polybius—because um, they're unstable, you need uh, separated powers in order to ensure that they don't degenerate. Um, Scott Nelson, help us in, in this great synthetic way that, that Carolyn and Benjamin have been doing, in understanding using that reason-passion distinction as a core, um, how that plays out in his. Political philosophy and this idea of a well-tempered constitution. Tell us about reason, passion, and the constitution.
3: Sure. Yeah. Actually, um, just uh, one of the things that Benjamin was uh, mentioning reminds me, you know, how, how even virtue can go too far. Even virtue, um, you know, poses certain dangers. It reminds me of that bit from Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, where he says, "Ah, who'd have thought? Even virtue has need of limits." And I think that um, that that thinking is is very much latent in, in Cicero, as, as Benjamin has mentioned. I'd, I would point, for example, to, um, well, in On Duties, when he talks about uh, decorum, or translated as propriety or seemliness, um, it includes moderation as well. One of the functions of, uh, of seemliness for Cicero is that it keeps some of these other virtues, some of these other duties in check. Um, so greatness of spirit can be taken too far. Uh, the, the key example of that would be a guy like Caesar. Caesar was full of a great deal of greatness of spirit, but um, it, it ended up outstripping justice. He lost sight of justice. He went too far. And so he needs to have, he needs to have more, more moderation. In terms of the, the reason uh, passion split... One of the things I would uh, add there is that I think Cicero thought that the passions, the passions, if, you, if they get out of hand, then of course, you know, you can end up in in a sort of despotism, which is why you've got to keep them uh, under control. And Caesar's another interesting example of that, because there's a lot of people, for example, who might look at politics today and say, well, it's about... We want to, we want to get power, for example. And Caesar's a wonderful, um, example of, of how one, let's say, can, can get power. Well, in fact, it's not. Not just because he's killed by people who don't like the fact that he got power, but he actually, it's, his power ends up undermining itself in another way. Very late in life, when he's dictator, um, when he's sole dictator of Rome, Cicero writes a eulogy of Cato. And then Caesar, incensed at this, writes an anti-Cato. Uh, in response. Now, in Caesar, to Caesar's credit, he, he chooses actually to respond with words and, and not with a sword, even though he very well could have responded with violence instead. Um, but the effect of the anti-caesar was really just to remind the populace of just how virtuous or, or persistent or awesome a character Cato the Younger was, and isn't that such a poignant thing? Because Caesar fails to achieve his goal of, of trashing Cato, uh, Cato's name, and isn't that poignant? Because Caesar, the most powerful man in Rome at the time, is powerless against the ghost of Cato. You know, and that's that's that speaks, I think, very much to. Um, also, Cicero's *Philippics*, you know, written at the end of his life, um, the immediate f- effect of Cicero's *Philippics* is that they irritate Mark Antony, and they—they they, it ends up with Cicero's head and hands chopped off and nailed to the rostra. Um, but the long-term effect of such a, a noble um, and at times very humorous work as the *Philippics* is that it makes such an eloquent case for liberty against tyranny. So. I think, though, what I was going to say, though, in terms of reason and passion, is that even a guy as, as awesome and as, and, as, and as full of greatness as Caesar, because he cannot control his lust for power, he is, he's undone by that and he ends up bested by a ghost, effectively. Cicero, by contrast, would say, well, if you are attaching your happiness to, let's say, the acquisition of wealth, or popular acclaim, or power for that matter, then you're attaching your happiness to something that is inherently fickle, volatile, and dependent on other people. Because all of those things are dependent on other people and on circumstances. The only thing over which you have perfect control is your own individual virtue, your own inner virtue. Um, And if you cultivate that then you, you're guaranteed to be happy regardless of what the world throws at you. And I think that's effectively the, um, the conclusion that he arrives at at, uh, at the end of his Tusculan Disputations in book five, that virtue is, is the key to true happiness. And I can't help but feel that this must have been at the backs of the minds of the founding fathers when they talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: Wow. Well, it certainly was. And as it happens, I'm working on a book now called Pursuing Happiness, the ancient wisdom that inspired the founder's quest for the good life. And I'm so struck by the fact that Cicero's *Tusculan Disputations, the book that you mentioned, uh, is cited repeatedly by So many of the major founding fathers as their definition of the pursuit of happiness. And at the end of his life, Thomas Jefferson would send to anyone who wrote to him, kids of friends who were going to law school or um, students of all kinds who asked him for the definition of happiness, a passage from the Tusculan Disputations. And I want to read it because it just sums up the definition of the pursuit of happiness you just gave us that controlling your own thoughts to cultivate the tranquility of mind that will allow us to be free from the vagaries of fortune. And this is the passage that Jefferson quoted. And uh, it was also quoted by Benjamin Franklin and his 13 virtues and by John Adams, by John Quincy Adams. Uh, here it is. Therefore, the man, whoever he is, whose soul is tranquilized by restraint and consistency, and who is at peace with himself, so that he neither pines away in distress, nor is broken down by fear, nor consumed with a thirst of longing in pursuit of some ambition, nor maudlin in the exuberance of meaningless eagerness. He is the wise man of whom we are in quest. He is the happy man. Carolyn Winter, I'm so eager for all of your thoughts and insights about the significance of this definition of happiness from the Tusculan Disputations. What is the significance and why did so many of the founders quote it?
1: First of all, thank you for reading it out again, because it's so inspiring. You know, today we will all attempt that version of happiness. I think happiness is one of those 18th century keywords in the way that liberty and reason is, in that it's simultaneously everywhere, and yet we have a hard time pinning down exactly what they meant by it. A little bit like today when we talk about nature. Uh, everybody means something different by it, and and yet we all agree that it's something very very important. So in the 18th century, as you've just said, there is a a, a definition of happiness from the ancient world that is all about a kind of inner um, a, a inner peace. I think of it a little bit as an inner metronome. You know, as someone who grew up playing the piano with. With a, a taskmaster of a Hungarian piano teacher, uh, there was always a metronome keeping me, you know, right in line and and that version of happiness is is a little bit like that. You know, there's another one though, that is in competition, I think, with that inner definition of happiness. When you look at the way the founders deployed happiness in more public documents, they talk about social happiness and public happiness. They often link those words together. And the Declaration of Independence is the most public of public documents. And it's intended in some sense as a a sort of, we're going into business document, uh, intended for a European audience saying, we're no longer uh, under the aegis of Great Britain. We are hanging our shingle out for business. We are telling you uh, what what we're all about and that you can form trade uh, agreements and political alliances with us. So if you imagine that they mean life, liberty, and social or public happiness then, then that starts to mean something closer to what we mean by national security in that it's saying that we need life We need liberty, but we also need a state that is strong enough that it can protect us from external enemies and internal anarchy, you know, insurgents of various kinds. And so I think that there's it it will always remain a mystery what Jefferson meant, because he knew that this document was really intended for this external audience. It's a diplomatic document. And so does he mean life, liberty, and internal peace <laughs> or does he mean life, liberty and national security uh, for the this new and very fragile Republic? I don't think we're ever gonna know and I don't actually think we need to decide. I think what's important to know as we think about the American context is that there are these two ideas that are floating in the air of what the happiness of a polity built on the will of the people really needs in order to survive. And uh, what I would love is if every American out there revisited these 18th century ideas of happiness, because they're not the materialistic hedonism that we have today, when we think of happiness, like I need a BMW, or I guess I live in Palo Alto, I need a Tesla, Uh, nothing against Tesla, but you know, a kind of uh, pursuit of material gain—that's not what Jefferson meant. He meant something much closer to what you were saying, Jeff, and and something much closer to what I was saying. But they're all different from what we think of today.
0: So powerful and so true, and exactly as as you say, for Jefferson and the founding generation, happiness was not feeling good; it was being good. It was not hedonism and the pursuit of pleasure; it was virtue and self-mastery. And then you raise this really interesting question, what's the similarities and differences between that private happiness that comes from internal tranquility and public happiness that comes from national security? Benjamin Stroman, I'd love your thoughts on on how to reconcile those those ideas of public and private happiness. And I I wonder, Carolyn's um, suggestion made me think, might we say that for Cicero, just as private happiness was achieved by a well-tempered mind. Public happiness was achieved by a well-tempered constitution, and we had to find the same balance in our uh, faculties of uh, reason on, on the private level that we have to do among the branches of government on the public level. Might something like that work?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's certainly a um, you know a, a very influential image. This analogy of our inward balance and that this is seen in analogy to the constitutional makeup of a state is, of course, uh, and that's Plato's idea in in his republic. And to a certain extent, I think uh, Cicero follows this, but because of this skepticism that is not Plato's, but very much Cicero's, I think he can't can't go all the way. Uh, So for Cicero, maybe it's more important to have a, a carved out domain where you actually can have uh otium the kind of leisure uh to philosophize which is something he himself of course does especially once he's uh, no longer um uh once he's kicked out of politics and can't do anything in his uh, on his country estates um so he's thinking about those things and in a way the Tuscalans are an expression of that there you see him in a kind of in a very stoic mode really but it is in it's it's in sharp tension with what he says in other works like de Finibus. so he's he's a stoic when you catch him as such and the toscallino's there he's there he is one but it might be the case that for him it's important that we be able to um, figure out the, let's say, the correct conception of the highest good and uh, the correct conception of happiness. Uh, he's a bit of a he's a fallibilist in that regard. I mean, he thinks maybe we will figure it out, but right now I don't. I don't think he has the confidence that he shows in the Toscol, and he, the next day, he will have less confidence. Um, you can see also in, the, in his correspondence how these um, things move around a bit. Um, but on the when it comes to the to the political order. There, I think, um, for sure, uh, he does follow Polybius to a certain extent in, um, you know, trying to arrange the institutions of the state such that you do have a kind of, as he put it, well tempered or balanced um, uh, setup of a constitutional setup. And what he does, and I think what is uh, somewhat new, is that he tries to figure out the underlying um constitutional order and he does that in a very legalized manner i mean he's learned in the roman law as well so he uses legal private law analogies all the time to explain the political legal order And in a way, that uh, moves now in um, as a remedy uh, to the decay and the collapse of the Roman Republic, because he puts forward in in his laws, in the De Legibus, written in the late 50s, perhaps in the 40s, it's hard. There's a bit of a dispute about that. But as the Republic collapses, and as there is the looming civil war, already the civil war, he puts forward really a set of laws that he says are um, formulating natural law, and that are supposed to give shape to the state. And that is important to the founders, of course, because unlike us who are used to the idea that constitutional law is a kind of law, uh, this is a pretty novel idea. And usually when people talked about constitutions, also in early modern times, what they meant is just descriptively, how is the state a sociology of the state, basically? But with Cicero, the founders now start perceiving this foundational order as based in natural law, as Scott pointed out, but also as as really a kind of law and it enters constitutional thought. You know, you see Wilson during the ratification debates defend the supremacy clause by saying, sure, this is actually law. And if lower levels of law do conflict with it, then, you know, they have to go, uh, they have to be declared void or we have to somehow make sense um, of this hierarchy. And I think this hierarchy and really perceiving the underlying legal order as, as really legal is a pretty um, influential idea of Cicero's with which he tries to give um, fine-grained shape, legal shape, to to the idea of a rational order, rational political order.
0: So interesting. And you do such a marvelous job in in showing us how direct Locke's writings on natural law were in in drawing on Cicero. And and, and as you say, Locke recommended just two books uh, on ethics. One uh, was uh, Cicero's on um, uh, duties, um, and uh, the other of the Bible, uh, so crucially insightful. Scott, you you started, you introduced the Tusculan Disputations, which I read, and Carolyn introduced us to the distinction between public and private happiness, and I suggested that perhaps one connection between them and Cicero and the Enlightenment thought was that. Uh, personal self-government was necessary for political self-government. We had to find the inner tranquility of mind and mastering of our unreasonable passions on a personal level in order to be good citizens and have a balanced constitution at a political level. Might that work? Or or how would you describe uh, the Ciceronian conception of the relation between public and private happiness?
3: I mean, I, I think that they're they're certainly related. I mean, unfortunately, it's um, it's rather banal of me to say, but you sort of you sort of need to, to have uh, both. When when what you just mentioned there, it kind of reminds me, though, um, Pache, what you just said, but it reminds me of what. Um, what Friedrich von Hayek once said in one of his essays, he said that um, if we have to wait for everyone to be virtuous before we can have freedom, then we're going to have to wait for a very long time indeed. You know, so we might we might start with the freedom first, um, even though it might lead to some some bad outcomes from time to time. And indeed, that's the that's the view that um, that Cicero uh, seems to take as well, because the the polity Rome is not about. Making citizens virtuous—I mean, it should. We should try to tend in that direction. But liberty comes comes first. Whereas, if your goal is ultimately to make everyone virtuous, then um, that may entail a, a great deal of um, restraints on people's liberty. But in terms of the yeah the, the the connection between private and and public happiness, I mean, I think that one way that that they're connected um and one thing that we can certainly learn from from Cicero is well obviously moderation moderate our our expectations moderation both of ourselves personally but also moderation on a, on an institutional level Um, But also we could start to talk about, as Cicero does in Deo Ficis, we can start to talk more about about duties. Now, I know that's going to sound like a hopelessly antiquated um, and terrible thing to say because we're all inundated all the time with all sorts of duties and obligations, and so we'd much rather talk about rights. But I think there are psychological reasons why it's useful to talk a little bit more about duties than we do, Um, namely... When we talk about rights so often, we end up becoming the passive recipients of, of rights. It's everything that uh, you know that is owed to us by other people. And when we don't get it, then we see ourselves as being victims. Duties actually restores to us as individuals a certain moral agency, which uh, the, the the ability to choose to do something, what we should and should not do, and that's actually key to to our to our humanity. Um, so duties, recovering that kind of talk about duties, what it is that we should do. And when I say what it is that we should do, I don't mean what we as a society should do, because uh, society, if, if we as a if everyone's responsible for something, then no one's responsible for something. What I mean is that Scott Nelson, I need to look closely at my life and decide you know—what what it is that I should do. Uh, Jeff, you look close at your life, you decide what you should do, et cetera, et cetera. We may actually find ourselves a lot more empowered, a lot uh, feeling a lot better, and also incidentally contributing to our community, to the public good. And, and that that uh, brings me to another point, I mean because we we talk a lot about uh, to the extent that we talk about duties, we talk about, let's say, civic duties. I think Cicero would say to us on that, Yes, civic duties, very important, but be serious about them. Um, When you say we as a society should do something, who exactly are you addressing and what sort of an outcome do you expect? When you blast something off, let's say, into the Twitter uh, space and whatnot, who do you want to listen to and what effect do you really want that to have? Cicero, by contrast, always had a very clear idea of who his audience was—was was it a you know a jury? Was it the the assembly of people? Was it the Senate? Um, was it Caesar, for example? Um, and he had a clear idea of what it was that he wanted to do when he when he opened his mouth and when he spoke. And it's interesting that for, for us, we, we live in a world where we are uh, surrounded by words even more so than than in Cicero's time. And yet one of the things that Cicero brings up at the beginning of his De Oratore applies even more forcefully in our day than it did in his time, which is that why is it that the one thing that is common to all human beings, the ability to reason and to speak, indeed that which is most divine in us, that which connects us to the gods, why is it that we so frequently misuse or abuse this very divine gift that we that we all have? Why do we use it for deceit and fraud, or why do we not use this divine gift um, seriously? And so I think that uh, Cicero would would ask us: Yes, say civ- civic duty is very important, but um, reflect a little bit more seriously on. Who you're talking to, and what exactly it is you mean to to accomplish when you when you advocate a particular uh, course of action. And I think in so doing, you might find yourself both happier privately, and also it would contribute to the uh, to the public happiness.
0: Ah, oh, crucially, wise words, and just as you say, Cicero, and it was so focused on audience, on what you're trying to accomplish, and you just introduced this really crucial reminder of the lost language of duties. Uh, Cicero did think that we have a duty to moderate our temper and our expectations and our thoughts because it would align us with the harmonies of the universe. And that's kind of fallen out of our discourse in a rights-oriented age. Carolyn Winter, why did the language of duties fall out of the curriculum? In your amazing book, The Culture of Classicism, you trace the rise and fall of classical education between 17 80 in 1910 after classical education fell out of the curriculum character education persisted for a while in the McGuffey reader and the Columbian orator which Lincoln and Douglas read selections from classical texts uh, you know you know in translation but in the 1960s in particular it seems like that fell out of the curriculum and I'm I'm just I'm trying to understand why why that happened. Obviously, there were Supreme Court decisions that said that you can't teach religion appropriately, which made it difficult to teach some of these texts. There was a new me generation ethos of feeling good rather than being good. But but why did this uh, language of duties and character education fall out of the curriculum? And and how do you find that students react to it when you teach these texts today?
1: Uh, Okay, Uh, that's a big question uh, that could have its own... National Constitution Center <laughs> seminar so um i will just point to one thing that comes to mind which is that in the 1960s at the height of the cold war americans began to ask themselves how they can educate americans to combat uh, totalitarianism how do we educate students for a free society as they put it and I'm not sure character education has entirely fallen out, but the new emphasis on creativity as a key feature of American education, I think was very new after World War II. And it was Absolutely tied up with the the fear that if we didn't make American children creative, then they would become automatons, the way they imagined Soviet children must be, that they were being educated for totalitarianism while Americans were being educated for freedom. There's a wonderful book about this by Jamie Cohen Cole uh, that's called The Creative American. Uh, So um, I don't know if that's something that can go in in the chat, uh, but it's a wonderful look at why that is. It's unclear within creativity where duty fits because it's not so much the me generation as the generation of cultivating one's own talents and skills, whatever those might be. And, and the role of duty in all of that is, is very, very unclear. Um, So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of different reasons why an explicit focus on duty has fallen away. Um, But I think the rise of creativity, which I'm not. We have people who are in the European educational system with us. So, clarify me if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but my own experience in European schools is that there's much more emphasis on. Um, memorization, not not to the exclusion of of creativity, but that it's really in American schools that there's a downgrading of memorization and an upgrading of creativity. Um, and again, with duty falling away as a, as a critical discourse. So those are some of my rather unformed thoughts on the question. (laughs) But I think that students learn duty in other ways, Jeff. um, I'm teaching a history of ideas class this fall here at Stanford, and we're moving from the founding era to 1900. And the students are very concerned about the State of the Union. They they want to be good citizens. They want to learn about duty and they're doing it in their own way. Uh, whether it's by reading John Adams or by reading William James in the late 19th century or Frederick Douglass, um, the, it's not as, as top down as it was uh, in the 18th century curriculum.
0: Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for that great um, answer. As you say, so much to discuss and, and perhaps we will indeed Reconvene to talk about that. Thanks for the recommendation about the creativity book. And great to hear that your students today are uh, focused on all these different ways of learning about duties. Uh, Benjamin Strauman, I, I think this may be our last uh, major intervention, but curious both about your thoughts about why character and duty may have fallen out of the curriculum. Is Did it also fall out in, in Europe in the 60s or not? And then... Um, what remaining aspects of Cicero would you like to highlight that you think that all of us should keep in mind today?
2: Yeah, I think um, speaking from the beating heart of uh, Western European republicanism, namely the small-scale Swiss republic, uh, I'm in a good position to talk about this. I mean, I do think there is a bit more focus of this on this kind of thing, um, especially in Switzerland, um, but it, it also shows it's... Uh, that is a bit of a two-edged sword. I mean, in in many ways, this kind of, um, you know, character education that is being dished out here, um, also in primary schools, like my kids, or there's there's a bit more attention on these things. But it's 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 a bit like Montesquieu on the on the on the small scale ancient republics. It also it does have a I would say a mildly, um, perhaps repressive or constraining aspect to it, and it's very it's homogenizing in a way. Um, and that, uh, that this brings us maybe back to the Cicero discussion, the Cicero question. One reason why the founders were attracted to Cicero, another reason which we may not have talked about sufficiently, but which was key in my view, is that uh, the founders, you know, they did away with the king. They wanted to have a republic. Now, republics were just much smaller than the 13 uh, original colonies. And so everyone said, read your Montesquieu. You, don't, you just don't get it. You can't have a large scale, a big. Territorial state without a king, that just doesn't work. The founders say, No, we can. Look, there is actually this huge thing, it's the Roman Republic. Um, and the reply is usually, Yeah, but that thing also collapsed. How are you going to do that? And then the reply to that is usually, Well, but Cicero has kind of an answer to that, too. So um, uh, there is a little bit of falling away of, um, you know, virtue talk and all of that. Uh, duties very much, like the Ophicis by Cicero. But in the by Cicero, also one has to see it is, it's always, it's duties, but to these, duties correspond right. So it's actually, it's it's a very loyally way of talking about this. If you have a right to something, I have a duty to give it to you. Um, so you cannot have rights without duties and vice versa. Um, and it's correspondingly a little bit thin. So it's not this full blown um, character education that you would get in, I don't know, Sparta, for example. So it is large scale. There's a lot of different people. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why, although the 13 colonies were much smaller than current day United States, they were still much bigger than any of the other ancient city states.
0: Wonderful. Thanks for that update on the state of character education in Europe and also the state of the idea of duties. Well, Scott, the last word in this marvelous discussion is to you, and I'm going to ask you to do what all three of you have done so well throughout the hour, which is just to channel the enduring relevance of Cicero and, and sum up for our great audience of lifelong learners what it is about Cicero's moral and political thought That is relevant in the 21st century today.
3: Well, apart from the aforementioned, uh, I'll conclude then with just one thing um, that I think both Cicero and the Founding Fathers would say, and that is make time for study. Make time to to study these great texts. You've got plenty of time to read whatever outrageous thing is happening in the news. That's always going to be there. Don't worry about it. Take time to read. These great texts, as even uh, Jefferson, in a letter to Adams, he talks about how he's, he stopped reading the newspapers they 're just depressing he 's reading his Tacitus and Thucydides, and he 's much the happier for it. Read these great texts because the founding fathers were all busy, but the founding fathers were busy founding a great nation, and yet they still took the time to read Cicero, Sallust Tacitus, Livy, you know uh, Thucydides, and whatnot. Uh, and I can't help but feel that it was precisely because they took that time to do so that uh, the, the, the nation is as great as it is. Um, I mean, John Adams, I, I think he, what was it, every, every year he'd uh, always make time to reread Cicero's text on old age, De Senectute, um, in Latin, of course. So read, your, read it in Latin and Greek if you can. And as far as I'm concerned, if Marcus Tullius Cicero was good enough for men as enlightened and excellent as the founding fathers, then surely he's good enough for us today.
0: Beautiful. What a perfect place to end. You are so right, Scott Nelson, that that's inspiring, central practice that the founders had of deep reading into old age of the classics in general and of Cicero in particular. John Quincy Adams took an entire year after he left the White House to reread all of Cicero in latin jefferson and adam's finding consolation uh, before death it's an inspiration to all of us and as you say all we need to do is stop browsing and start reading and take advantage of these remarkable screens that we have before us to access all the books of the world it's so exciting that they're all just available with a single click. And that's why, friends, we put so many of these primary texts online in the new founders library, including excerpts from the Tusculan disputations from On Duties and from other key Ciceronian texts. Carolyn Winter, Benjamin Stramman, and Scott Nelson, I'm so grateful to you for teaching me and, and all of our great listeners so much about Cicero and friends who are watching. I'm so grateful to all of you lifelong learners for taking an hour out in the middle of your day to learn and grow front, these three brilliant scholars who have shown so much light on this crucial topic. Carolyn, Benjamin, Scott, thank you so much for joining. Today's show was produced by Tanea Tauber, John Guerra, and Lana Ulrich, and Melody Rao. It was engineered by the NCC's crack AV Team. Research was provided by Liam Kerr, John Guerra, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to we the people on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's looking for a holiday listening and reading and wants to learn and grow. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the devotion to using your hours of leisure to learn about the Constitution, just as you're doing now. The way to signal your support for this great mission is to become a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. Or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org slash donate a dollar, five dollars, or ten. But we would so appreciate, all of us, we the people, uh, a gift of any amount for the holidays. Sending all of you warm wishes, friends, and see you in 2023. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.